Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightman and I'm here with Zigzag, my co-host. Uh, today our guest is Reverend David Peters. Uh, welcome, Pastor Peters. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, so Dave, where are you serving right now? I serve on a, in a dual parish, two small Lutheran churches, one on either side of the Mississippi River uh, in uh, Wabasha, Minnesota. That's uh, our Redeemer Lutheran. And uh, Nelson, Wisconsin is Grace Lutheran. So what is Wabasha known for? Uh, it's the home of the National Eagle Center. So if you go to a national park, you would go to the check out the visitor center while you're there. Uh, but eagles are all over the country. And so uh, where do you go? Where's a visitor center to honor them, to learn about them? It's in Wabasha. Wabasha is the uh, first capital city of the territory of Minnesota, uh, well before statehood. And uh, moved from here to St. Paul, obviously, at some point. Uh, it's probably best known in, in this day and age. For about 27, 28 years ago, there were two movies put out uh, called Grumpy Old Men and Grumpier Old Men, Walter Matthau and uh, Jack Lemmon, and a few very beautiful actresses co-starring. And uh, those were set here in Wabasha. So, so I've heard there... that eagles do not um, make the, the typical sound that we hear they make in uh, soundtracks of movies and things like that, that they're, they're... <laughs> cry is actually not that impressive. Do you know anything about that? I see at least a dozen eagles a day in my travels, and I've never heard one. But are we yeah. talking like bald eagles, like the American bald eagle? Primarily the bald eagles. There are a few um, uh, golden eagles as well. Marquette University's named that. You know, their teams are named after the golden eagles. Uh, golden eagles are more upland birds, whereas bald eagles are more uh, uh, water type birds they um well golden eagles for example they don't eat fish <laughs> they eat carrion you know and then and the rodents and whatever small dogs if they can get one but they uh, and that's serious be careful with your little dog out in the air uh whereas uh, a bald eagle will do that as well but they really prefer open water so it's kind of cool to see them in the winter late winter especially i haven't seen them doing it yet but when ice fishermen get off the ice they leave these little holes in, in, in the ice and you see all the eagles go stand right there and peer down and they start ice fishing and they wait down there and they stare and stare and stare until finally they see a fish go by it they nab it pull it up or other places where there's just a, a long line of where the where the, 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 the ice line the freezing is you got the channel that's open but you got water frozen on either side and they'll stand on the side and they'll fish sometimes but without even going up in the air but otherwise, you'll see them sitting in. The, uh, they'll do circles in the air looking for food, or they'll be sitting up in a in a tree, and they can see. They say they can see a fish three feet under the water, a quarter of a mile away. Their eyesight is incredible. So, so Dave, one of the things with our podcast is Jeremy and I will throw out quotes a lot of times from different movies and so forth. And I thought I'd throw out some quotes from Grumpy Old Men, but. I was looking him up and I can't, I can't use any of them because that is not a clean movie. It's uh, kind of border. It's a little bit borderline. I, I, uh, I was told at Marquette that, that, that the movie should be called dirty old men instead of. Yeah. Old 
Yeah, there's a lot of filthy language in their famous quote. So I'm not gonna they're, they're I'm not really gonna quote any of them. We won't go there. But you know, and, and I think they're probably rated R because of language and some of the subject matter. Yep. But a lot of what you see in the movie is just exactly what it looks like and what they do around. And every year in the last weekend in February, uh, and we usually don't hang around for that very much because that's Judy's and my uh, anniversary. But the last week in February, they have what they call grumpy old men days here. And they dig uh, uh, ice in the Mississippi River. They, they, they dig holes in there, a big hole, and off the end of a pier. And they go ahead and they jump into the what they call the grumpy plunge. And uh, it reminds me of Lake Michigan there at Racine and other cities where they go jump into cold water. And I just think they're all crazy. But uh, do they do they ever have to end up fishing vehicles out of the water because they they sunk in when because they were out there too long on the ice? Probably. I don't know if it happening in our area since I've been here. It has not made the news. I've been here about four and a half years, so okay. it hasn't been in the news. What has been in the news is uh, when a boat capsizes and they lose somebody, uh, or if they, uh, uh, or if, if, if they lose a snowmobile, somebody decides to uh, go from Wisconsin to Minnesota or vice versa and not use a bridge. The bridges are a long way apart, though. You know, they they average about forty miles apart, so you can go down to Winona or you can go up to Red Wing. Winona's not too bad; it's only about. 26, 27 miles between their bridge and our bridge between Wapashaw and Nelson. Otherwise, you got to go up to Red Wing, and it's about a 40-minute drive up there. Uh, so, so, Dave, where, where else have you served in the ministry? Now you're in that area of Wisconsin and, and Minnesota, but where else have you been? Well, I was ordained in 87 at uh, Christ Lutheran in Beatrice, Nebraska. Uh, for most of the five and a half years I served out there, I also served as the longtime vacancy pastor at um, Christ the King Lutheran in Washington, Kansas, a little congregation which has since folded. They only had nine members when I started serving them. They only had six when I left, uh, and none of them under the age of 78. So, uh, But they had 100% Bible class attendance. So, <laughs> as Christ the King in Washington, Kansas, wonderful saints of God. And then, uh, but five and a half wonderful years in, in Beatrice, Nebraska. And then uh, 21 and a half years, I served from 93 till the end of 2014 in um, uh, central Racine County in the town of Yorkville at, uh, at Trinity Lutheran. And then uh, I served from uh, January of 2015 with you, Mike, at, uh, at Epiphany Lutheran, uh, the English Evangelical Lutheran Church of the Epiphany, formerly known as. And now that uh, I served there for three years, excuse me, until 2018, uh, March 2018, I accepted the call. It was installed here in this parish. Um, kind of noteworthy, I, I've served as a vacancy pastor on 11 different occasions. And one that was uh, very noteworthy, other than the Washington, Kansas one, was uh, Zion Lutheran in Bristol, Wisconsin, where I served them three times as vacancy pastor for a total of 30 months, so two and a half years, really, uh, serving them. So I also taught as adjunct instructor at Shoreland Lutheran High School, some years as an adjunct, some years just as a substitute for 20 years at Shoreland uh, in the town of Summers, Kenosha County. So a um, whole lot of ministry went on there too. So, so Dave, one of the, one of the stories I, I often tell when, I talk, when we 
teach about baptism is uh, Maggie. So Maggie was a Chinese student who stayed with you. If you want to tell your view of the story. So Maggie was a young lady uh, that was staying with you as uh, an international student that was at Shoreland. And then while she was staying with you, as you were serving alongside of me, uh, and then you were living in our parish house next door, then uh, I ended up taking her through adult instruction classes and baptizing her. But I can only tell that story from my point of view. If you want to tell maybe her conversion story from your point of view is kind of being a, a foster dad in a way. Well, thank you for asking. She's our godchild and she's very, very dear to us and always will be. Maggie is um, from Beijing. Her name is Ifan Sun. Uh, I, I'm sure my uh, Mandarin Chinese pronunciation or accent is terrible, but, uh, or Sun Ifan, I'm not sure how it goes. They switch their names around the, the, the way that we say them. But in any event, she's, uh, she came here for her junior and senior years to Shoreland with the idea of learning English well enough to be able to go to American University, which she did. And, um, but while she lived with us for two years, uh, first out in the county for uh, a semester and then the next three semesters at Epiphany, you know, right there in Racine, at Epiphany moved. And um, during that time, she was exposed to the gospel quite a bit while living with us and while uh, attending all the worship services and uh, teens events that we had at, uh, at Union Grove. And then we also had, um, her, of course, at Shoreland where she was being taught God's word uh, regularly and often every, every day. And uh, so then she told me that she thought she wanted to be baptized. She'd heard a lot about baptisms, going to chapel services and instruction classes and such and, uh, at, at Shoreland. She, she wanted to be baptized, and I explained to her that uh, Pastor Zarling, uh, my good buddy next door, has got a, a wonderful uh, tutorial class in which he um, I will be very glad to prepare you for that and for confirmation. And uh, so my wife and I will always be thankful to you, Mike, for providing that uh, Christian education for Maggie. And uh, we've got some wonderful photos of the events of her baptism and her confirmation. So we're still in touch with her. She graduated from uh, University of California at Irvine and uh, back home in uh, China, she, um, the Chinese government assigned her a job. She works for TikTok. Oh, wow. That doesn't mean she, she doesn't, that doesn't mean she likes what the Chinese government does with that information. But it's another point entirely. She has yeah. to be more than discreet in uh in um conversing with us via instant messenger on, on uh, facebook most chinese can't do that but because she works for um an internet-based company like that um, she can get behind the firewall with that's what the other employees there do too get behind the firewall and communicate with us otherwise we would not be able to communicate with her and in fact we, we cannot initiate conversation she said that's too dangerous. She said, I, right. I can't tell you. I, she said, I can't tell you what they do to people who are openly Christian. Right. Well, I, I remember when, oh, it was like right after everything locked down with COVID and then she went back home to China and she reached out to you and your wife, Judy, me as her pastor, and then said, we can't contact her because of the yeah. danger of being a Christian in China. Right. But she has contacted us several times and tells us that she loves us and she loves Jesus and 
yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. When I tell the story too, with Maggie's baptism, I'll also add that my girls, uh, that they were teasing me after Maggie's baptism and said, dad, how come you were tearing up during Maggie's baptism? You didn't tear up during our baptisms. And I said, well, that's because I knew, you know, what you had in, in a family that was going to be able to con- continue grow your Christian faith. But Maggie, when she goes back home, she doesn't have that. And so that's a, yeah, it's a pretty powerful statement that a young lady like that, 17, 18 years old, wants to have that, that baptism. That's both a, both a sign and the reality of her faith as a child of God. And yet knowing that when she goes back home, you know, she has to kind of hide that faith. Right. Well, our dream, of course, is to put uh, somebody or bodies from uh, our uh, seminary in, let's just put it that way, in um, in Hong Kong, in touch with, uh, I don't know what I can say on, on the internet, but uh, put, put somebody in touch with her yeah. to see what kind of ministry or kind of service can be provided, what kind of support, what kind of assistance. Who knows? The Lord may use her to bring others to faith, you know, the, behind that curtain. I'm, I'm reminded of the um, um, the days of the, the, the Soviet Empire, right after the uh, Second World War, really during and after the Second World War, our synods uh, uh, foreign missions in Poland and Eastern Germany, uh, we completely lost contact with those people over there for about four decades or so, if I remember correctly. And then when, when, when the wall came and tumbling down in Berlin and we were able to make contact once again with some of those people who were 30 before, but now they're now they're 70 something or were 40 before another 80 something uh, to find out how the Lord had indeed preserved a remnant of his people and kept them in the faith, you know, during all those years. And think of those people up in, uh, in Siberia, for example, who um, uh, we, we started broadcasting the gospel to them back around 1981, something like that. What do we call it? Uh, I think was the name of the program. Um, a lot of German Lutherans who were um, forcibly relocated by Stalin uh, up into the, uh, up into Siberia, and we just used shortwave radio out of transmitters in Siberia and uh, to send them the gospel message up there. And um, we were able over the years after the fall of the Soviet Empire and that to make contact with some of those people and find out that uh, the Lord's word works right so with that since we have jeremy here and he's right there at shoreland what have you seen jeremy the last three years that you've been there at shoreland uh, as far as chinese south korean uh, other other exchange students with the gospel touching their hearts you do you know of any stories like that with like we're talking about with maggie i i'm not going to be able to speak very authoritatively on anything um it kind of seems like sometimes the uh, anecdotes are of uh, people who have already had some exposure to the gospel and, and we are more or less reinforcing it, which is also important. Um, but uh, I, I do know of uh, cases where, um, well, maybe just one anecdote of a, a Chinese student who was sort of toying with the idea that he he said you know my parents are 
uh, of the tradition of our, our ancestors, you know, the, the Chinese traditional religion. Uh, but I think maybe for the time that I'm in America, maybe I should become Christian. And the, what was interesting was the way he was talking about it was kind of like, um, th this is more of a social uh, thing that I do to conform to, to society um, for the time being. And then, and then if I go back, uh, I, would, I would retake the faith of my family. Um, and uh, I, I think the teacher in that case was strongly discouraging him from doing that. But uh, yeah, I, I, I wish I had more success stories like Maggie. Well, she's definitely a trophy of God's grace. God's trophy, not ours. Right. Right. Well, fantastic. Well, Jeremy, you want to get into the gospel lesson? Sure. Um, the gospel is uh, for this Sunday, Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. His mother Mary was pledged in marriage to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, so he decided to divorce her privately. But as he was considering these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife, but he was not intimate with her until she gave birth to her firstborn son, and he named him Jesus. So, Dave, Matthew says that Mary was pledged to Joseph. How was Jewish engagement different than our American custom of engagement before marriage? Well, first of all, that those marriages were arranged, as most marriages throughout world history and most civilizations have been arranged by parents. Uh, quite typically, the, uh, the, the young man was actually a, an older boy, the parents decided, you know, you're going to need a wife someday. And that little girl down the street, we, we thank the world of her family, or we want to have an excellent business relationship with, with uh, that guy, with her daddy, or whatever. But they go for some, some reason why they would um, uh, go ahead and uh, work the parent, one set of parents with the other set of parents and come up with a match. And then they would meet with, uh, in those days, they would meet with the rabbi and uh, have a betrothal service. And the little girl quite often was, we would say, you know, kindergarten, first grade type age is my understanding. Sometimes a little older, but quite often it was, that was the case. And, and the boy quite often was uh, already in his teens. Then uh, after, the, after that little ceremony, that, that was the formal pledging or betrothal. Uh, each family pledged to give, you know, their child to the other. And then um, there, there were um, dowries exchanged, that sort of thing. Then you have 
Uh, years later, when the boy grew up to be a man old enough to, uh, to um, uh, acquire or build a house and uh, have an income, a profession that was satisfactory for the girl's parents, you know, that they said, okay. And as long as she was physically able to uh, conceive and bear children, which means teenage years, uh, then they would have a great big party. And she, they saved up for it for years. They would have a great big party. And she, uh, she would go home with her husband at that point. Okay. So it was very different than the way that we do uh, engagement. Uh, my parents never met my wife until they flew up here from Arizona for our wedding. <laughs> well, uh, having four daughters, I'm okay with arranged marriages. <laughs> Uh, but with this too, it's interesting. I know you guys are really in the original languages way, way better than I am. But in my studying too, uh, it points out in the EHV that uh, how the EHV translates this pledged in marriage instead of pledged to be married, like it was in the NIV, meaning that in, it was legally that Joseph and Mary were married. Uh, yes. He was her husband. She was his wife, even though they had not yet come together in marriage and or come together uh, and slept together. And that's the, that's the next thing, Jeremy. What is the expression "before they came together" referred to, and why is that important to our Christian faith? Well, as you sort of intimated, it means the consummating of the marriage, that um, the the wedding night, uh, having sex. Uh, and uh, why is that important to our Christian faith? Because if Mary was not a virgin when Jesus was born, then we are not saved. So uh, we, we need to have a, a Savior who is both God and man, and uh, Jesus has his humanity from his mother, uh, but he is also God because he was not conceived in the normal way. Uh, there, there was no uh, male donor of the the chromosomes that that created him. Um, so it, uh, we know we know that he is true God because his mother was a virgin when he was born. Yeah, and I had recently preached a sermon on the angel appearing to Joseph, and in there in the sermon I said that uh, went you know if throughout history. After Genesis 5, 3, as Adam has a son in his own image, and his own likeness, that every old lady would be able to, or every dad would look at the children and try and see something of him in them. Uh, you know, his eyes, his nose, a uh, smile for me, my girl's height. Uh, but with Jesus, no, no older ladies ever said to Jesus, oh, you're the spitting image of your father. Because there was... Uh, nothing of Joseph biologically in Jesus. And we're going to look at that of what kind of father Joseph still was to his foster or adopted son. Uh, and then, Dave, how else does Matthew make it clear in verses 18 and 20 that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus? Well, first of all, you, you begin with the direct statements that Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit before they came together, that was before they consummated marriage physically, 
and the statement that Joseph followed through and obeyed the angel. Okay, but then in addition to that, you have the Annunciation to both Mary and to Joseph. Um, Matthew records that, and also you have the citation from uh, Isaiah seven fourteen. I want to just emphasize though that there are um, there are several great miracles of Christmas associated with uh, uh, the birth of our Lord, and I would just give five of them okay. that are relevant here. First of all, that the birth of Jesus was foretold by many prophets. Secondly, that the birth of Jesus was announced by an angel of God. That's, that's miraculous. Thirdly, that Mary believed the angel's message. That is faith. That faith is the Holy Spirit working in the soul of the human being. Mary believed the angel's message. Uh, fourthly, that Joseph believed the angel's message. That Mary hadn't been fooling around and jumping the gun with some other guy. And finally, that a virgin conceived and bore a son. So you've got these five miracles right there that, that are um, of incredible importance to us and which we really celebrate uh, during Advent and Christmas. Well, with that, Jeremy, how do we confess these, this miracle of, uh, of Jesus being true God and true man in the same person? How do we confess that in our universal creeds? Well, uh, we uh, are, you, are you are you talking about the like Nicene Creed? Um, yeah, and the Apostles Creed, Apostles yeah. Creed. Uh, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Yep, Nicene so Creed. The... It's we say he's God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Um, and then uh, Athanasian Creed has a whole portion, a uh, 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 half of the creed, really, that is devoted to how the two natures in Jesus interact with each other. Yeah, so I'll read the Athanasian Creed portion. He is God, eternally begotten from the nature of the Father, and he is man, born in time from the nature of his mother, fully God, fully man, with rational soul and human flesh, equal to the father as to his deity, less than the father as to his humanity. So with these creeds, uh, why is it important uh, that we use these creeds in church to confess this truth or any other truth? Because, you know, if you have a, someone from the outside, it just sounds like, you know, uh, it, it can sound maybe, and this is the wrong word, but cultish. Everyone's saying exactly the same thing. And for a really long time with these creeds. So I'll open it up to either, both of you guys. Why is it so important that we have these creeds as part of our Lutheran worship? Do you want to go first, Jeremy? Well, there are a lot of people that say, uh, a lot of churches out there that say, uh, we teach the Bible. We just teach the Bible. And I, I hope they do. And they very well might. Uh, but I think it's also important to remember Jesus said that his church would never perish from the face of the earth uh, throughout the course of history. Uh, and if he wasn't lying about that when he said that, then there will be other believers, other Christians throughout the last 2000 years who have said what we are 
saying and believing. We're, we're, we, we had better not be just inventing or creating our own notions out of the blue. Uh, and so we're, that's why we want to make sure, are we talking the way that all other Christians throughout the course of history have also talked? Dave? Well, first of all, it's a public proclamation to the world and to the rest of the Christian church on earth that we are not um, some kind of uh, a cult or we're not sectarians in, in any sense, but rather we are very much right in line with the historic Christian church. Uh, I was going to let you finish that. That's just, I just wanted to point out, it's funny because he was saying, if we're all saying the same thing at the same time, that that sounds cultish or, or sectarian. Right. But the reality is, actually, if we're not saying what the historic Christian faith has said, that is cultish and sectarian, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, that's one thing that I think of immediately. Secondly, uh, for the people to speak the words, to read the words from their hymnals as they're speaking them, uh, or to recite them from memory, uh, or however they do it, uh, it's a wonderful uh, teaching device. It's uh, repetition is the mother of studies, as we always learn, uh, you know, from the Latin. And it's very, very true. Very true. It helps keep it in mind. Another thing, too, is um, you're, you're, I hate to say typical layperson. Professor Balgi taught us there is no such thing as the average layperson. He has been in the ministry for many years and never met him. But let's just go ahead and uh, nevertheless, Professor Balgi, if you say the average layperson, uh, when you ask him or her, you know, uh, what does the Bible teach? What's in that big book? A lot of them are left going, <laughs> they really don't know what to say. Really, a lot of our people don't. And, um, you know, I like to think that that's well, because I'm a poor teacher. I've taught it very well, apparently, over the years. But uh, what I think the best way to do is to give them some things that they can hold on to. It's called memory work. <laughs> you know, some things that they can hold on to. Uh, some nails on which they can hang their faith as it were, rather than their hat or their coat. And as it were, it's, you know, what do you believe about God? Well, he's my father. He's the maker of heaven and earth. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Well, he's his son, uh, you know, on and on right down the line. And um, when you want to confess your faith to somebody and somebody says you're Christian, what does that mean? What do Christians believe? Recite the Apostles' Creed. Right. And, and the reason I ask it, too, is, uh, like you said, of trying to help our people, you know, have something, a nail, a hook to hang everything on. And so many times when it comes up to the creed, if it really, uh, you know, we'll be saying the creed right after I've preached a sermon. And, you know, so if I've preached, for example, on saints triumphant, a lot of times I'll say, well, let's focus especially on the third article when we focus on the Holy Christian Church and the resurrection uh, from the dead. Or this Sunday, uh, when I'm preaching on the Old Testament lesson of Emmanuel, God with us, then I'll, and then it'll be the Apostles' Creed, and then I'll mention well, let's focus especially on that first portion of the Apostles' Creed when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, just to reinforce that there is worth in knowing and saying and reciting these things as the body of Christ. And like Jeremy said, too, is it's a good reminder uh, that we are, you know, when we are 
reciting, especially the Apostles' Creed, this is what every Christian should be confessing. If you're not a if you're uh, if you're not a Christian, you're not saying these things. If you are a Christian, you are saying these things. Yeah, there are some so-called non-credal churches. Think of the Campbellites, uh, best uh, preserved over the century, over the last century or so, as the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. Uh, they say the New Testament is our creed, you know, which are weasel words to get around it. You can't really nail them down on a whole lot of anything when they say that. And there are some others like that as well. It's probably the largest single group that I know of. So, Dave, since we're talking about the creeds here, how are you doing on your book on the Nicene Creed? I've set that on the shelf for the time being. I've amassed quite a bibliography. I'm looking at a, several hundred dollars worth of books that I bought, many hundred dollars, uh, books for continued research in that. But I've got um, another writing project going on right now, which I think is a lot more important. So, okay. I, I took up uh, Professor Broom's advice and started my own publishing company. Do you and want to hear about it? What's your publishing company's name? The Diet of Worms Press. It's an homage. I founded it in 2021, so it's an homage to the uh, the fact that uh, Martin Luther uh, made his great confession before the Imperial Diet of Worms in uh, 1521. So here it is, the uh, 500th anniversary of Luther before the Diet of Worms. And um, so far, I've published five ebooks on Kindle Direct Publishing. That's Amazon. And um, I'm going to be, it's rather technical subject matter, those five books, but they're not difficult to read. I wrote them with lay readers and both lay readers and theologically trained readers in mind. But I'm, I set aside the, the, my, my studies in, in uh, history and theology, the Nicene Creed, to uh, write and publish a book of sermons, uh, Grace from Our Redeemer, I'm calling it. And uh, one sermon for each Sunday, a major festival of all three church years. Uh, my first book, uh, Series B, Advent Through Pentecost, just came back from a reviewer. I'm going to incorporate just about all of his suggestions before publishing that volume. I'll be publishing that paperback. Uh, I'm going to publish that in paperback for uh, first half of the year and second half of the year. Uh, Advent Through Pentecost and Trinity Through Thanksgiving. Uh, year B, Year C, Year A, uh, not necessarily in that order. That's on how they come off my and uh, then I'll publish them in hardcover all together, okay. just three volumes, just three volumes in So that's what I'm working on now. Fantastic. Well, I'll make sure that we include a link to the to the Amazon uh, store so that everyone can download your books. <laughs> Thank you. So, Jeremy, what kind of man was Joseph that uh, in the way that he dealt with Mary when he realized that she was showing? Uh, scripture calls him a righteous man, uh, and you can also see him following through on that because he, he would have had, uh, some scholars point out that uh, according to Jewish law, that if Mary had actually been uh, unfaithful to him, she, she could have been stoned to death uh, if somebody could have proven that, and uh, that would have, um, that he would have been legally within his rights to uh, make this a big shameful spectacle for her. And yet it says that he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Um, and so that 
that shows a lot of heroism on his part and, and a lot of um, uh, thoughtfulness and kindness. Uh, and uh, I, maybe, maybe the most ringing endorsement we can give Joseph is that uh, we don't hear much about him, that he, he stayed out of the way. He did his job of uh, raising, raising a son that was not his own. Um, and uh, I just often think of the Proverbs where it talks about uh, he who holds his tongue is wise. Um, and uh, that, that kind of seems like what the personality that Joseph was. He just was the strong, silent type. And there was a lot of wisdom in that. Well, to build on that then, then Dave, is what kind of man does scripture show Joseph to be in the way, in the way he responded to the angel's proclamation in his dream? Kind of a man is shown to be. Well, he was not a vindictive man, so that's a negative rather than a positive. Not vindictive. Uh, not vindictive. Uh, he was very respectful of Mary. Okay, even in her situation, he was still nevertheless respectful of her. Uh, I don't know if that gets to. Is there any kind of point you wanted to get to with that question? Well, well I was just. I, 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 think I have a. I have a follow up to that. Yeah. Um, if. Uh, Pastor Peters, if you were going to write a sermon uh, for an Advent service on this text, uh, do you think you would choose the theme, Man Up? <laughs> no. Well, well, some, no. some pastors might. I, I am preaching on this text. <laughs> My theme is Emmanuel has come, miraculously, purposefully, and prophetically. So. Yeah. Well, the pastor that preached here at the beginning of Advent, his sermon theme was man up. Man up. Uh, man up. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremy's pointing out that that was my sermon theme. That, <laughs> uh, You're that, whether uh, I would have done that or not. Yeah. It's, and that's fine. It's not the way I roll. <laughs> uh, just because you, know, you look, the way I was looking at it was that you know, Joseph, he wanted to handle everything discreetly. But then the first thing he did when the angel told him, this is from the Holy Spirit, is he got up the next day, he brought Mary into his home, but did not sleep with her. And then I just kind of wanted to point out to men that in a culture that they are, you know, told, uh, you know, we're oftentimes misogynistic. Uh, there's to toxic masculinity. You can look at Joseph, whose minor festival is on March 19th, is here's a guy that as a stepdad or a foster dad or adopted dad, he did what needed to be done in taking care of his wife and, and son. Uh, and that scripture always calls him the parent and the father of Jesus. Uh, so, yeah, Jeremy just wanted to point that out. But you can also... Uh, for our listeners, you can also find that sermon on a Raised with Jesus podcast as well. Thank you. Yeah. So, Dave, what does the name Jesus mean? Oh, my goodness. Well, it's confusing, you see, because it's a Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, Latin, English name. Got that? Our English word Jesus is derived from the Latin Yezu which is derived from the Greek Jesus, which comes from the Aramaic Yeshua, which derives from the original Hebrew Yehoshua. That's Joshua. So Jesus and Joshua share the same name. And the name means the Lord saves or the Lord delivers. 
So I had this question the other day when I was visiting our Shoreland students. Uh, I, I talked with the student about everything that we have going on at church and their youth ministries. And then he asked this question. I thought, I think it fits in well here. He goes, yeah, he goes, I do have a question. What if uh, you just called Jesus uh, Yeshua and the Lord uh, Adonai or Jehovah? So he said, I heard this somewhere. Can you just call him that? So what would be your answer, Dave, to call Jesus Yeshua or the Lord Jehovah? Two things. I'd say, yeah, but why? I want to get at the why because he's reading or listening to some interesting sources. And I'd like to know what those sources are because they may be putting him at risk with some kind of false theology that he might want to be able to identify more. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and I explained to him the, the history of uh, the names of the Lord and Jesus coming from Hebrew to Aramaic and Greek and English and so forth like you did. But then I also stressed with him, I said, but if we're going to talk to God, it goes through Jesus. He is our high priest. And that's why we end our prayers in Jesus' name. So let's call him Jesus. You know, okay. Uh, he, he's, a, he's a sophomore. He's just going to challenge anything anyhow, which is what sophomores do. So then, Jeremy, what does the name Emmanuel mean? The with us God. He is the, the God who is... Uh, in our, he's, he's so, he is as close to you as the syllables you're pronouncing with your, with your mouth. Um, he is as close to you as your own skin. He's in, he's in flesh and blood with us uh, through the Virgin Mary. Uh, and uh, he is with us to the end of the age uh, through baptism, through the sacraments. Um, he is, there's no part of, our lives that he doesn't want to be a part of and that he isn't a part of. Um, so um, it, it, you, you cannot, you can, I don't think there's a way to take this too far. He is with us in every sense of the word with. Um, yeah. So why is that so important that name God with us compared to every other religion this world has ever come up with? Uh, simply because every, uh, every other way of human, that a human has devised of, of worshiping God involves us climbing up to God and us uh, finding, or, finding our way to him or earning our way to him. And uh, we have to do the work. Whereas Emmanuel, God is with us. It, the work is already done. And he already is here and uh, he already has saved us. Um, it's all a done deal. So then, Dave, if you were going to be explaining a manual uh, to your people about how God is with you, with us in Lutheran worship, how would you do that? How is God with us in Lutheran worship? He's with us um, in the gospel message itself. Jesus is the word of God and flesh he's the you know god incarnate so he is the word of god so in our worship which focuses on the word of god we're focusing on jesus as we as we do that he's also with us in a very special way in the sacrament of the lord's supper when he gives us his true body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins and the strengthening of our faith um, so he's 
he's very much with us in, in worship in those senses. He's also with us in worship in the same sense that he's with us at the table when we pray, come Lord Jesus, be our guest, right? Um, we don't set a, a place at the table for him necessarily, but in the, in the sense that he is omnipresent as true God, uh, we know that he is most certainly with us. And he's with us in a special way simply because he promised to be with us. And so we believe and trust that he is. Yeah, and the reason I asked that question, because again, just for our people, just to remind them why we do what we do in worship is to say, yeah, Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us as he comes to you in the, in the invocation. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he is with us as he is announcing the absolution of our sins. He's with us as the pastor is reading, like you said, Dave, the word incarnate from the lectern as he is there as the word that the pastor is explaining and applying to you from the pulpit and the word that was poured over your head in the waters of baptism and that you live with every day. And, and then the, the word that is connected with the bread and wine of the Lord's supper to create that sacrament and just, and then he's with us also in the benediction when uh, the Lord sends us home with his blessing and just to remind our people, that's a way that God is with us. And yet, you know, we just had this a little while ago in our epistle lesson that, in revelation that we will see God face to face one day. That's really what we're focusing on that one God is with us here, but it's, it's in part and we can't see him fully. Uh, he's with us fully, but we can't see him. But one day uh, we will see Emmanuel God with us face to face and how awesome that's going to be. Yeah. Theology, that's sort of the beatific vision. We get the privilege of, of the beatific vision. That's, that is a major emphasis in Eastern Orthodoxy, and it's not, I don't see it as a very major emphasis in, uh, in Western Christianity, but uh, very, yeah, but let's not forget the beatific vision that we're not just going to get to go to heaven someday, but we will be reunited with our creator in the sense that we will see him face to face. We can't look upon him now, no sinner can, without dying immediately, but um unless he enables us to do so in some special way. But uh, we will see him face-to-face -face in glory. Anything else you guys want to bring up with the gospel lesson? Any little tidbits or nuggets? Nope. All right, Jeremy, you want to read the epistle lesson then? Romans chapter 1. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised in advance through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This gospel is about his son, who in the flesh was born a descendant of David, who in the spirit of holiness was declared to be God's powerful son by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, we received grace and the call to be an apostle on behalf of his name to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, including you who were called by Jesus Christ. To all those loved by God who are in Rome called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Dave, who is the audience, the original audience for Paul's epistle, and why is it important that 
we today are also the audience for this epistle of Romans. Well, I remember you preached a series on uh, on the book of Romans, and you called it the summer in Rome. I did. That was pretty cool, I thought, actually. I thought it was innovative. I really did. Uh, who, who was the, audi- the, the intended audience of the Christians who happened to be in Rome? Paul himself had never yet been to Rome. So this is kind of a letter of introduction, so to speak. This is what the, this is the message I'm going to be bringing to you people when I show up on your front door. Uh, <laughs> yeah, how is it that you have a bunch of Christians then? Since I mean, there were no Christians in Corinth until Paul brought the gospel. There, there were none in Thessalonica until Paul brought the gospel. How could there be Christians in, in Rome? Because all roads did not leave, uh, lead to Corinth or Thessalonica. All roads did lead to Rome. So when you've got the stoning of St. Stephen and the persecution that follows thereafter, you've got... Uh, the, uh, the the flight and the the, uh, the diaspora of Christians of fleeing from Jerusalem and going all over the, the place, including um, some of whom, uh, perhaps many of whom, end up in the capital city of Rome itself. And they've got at least one congregation. There may have been more than one congregation of Christians who were meeting in the city of Rome. In those days, uh, out in the open, the persecution uh, hadn't really begun in Rome quite yet. They didn't have to meet on the ground yet. That wouldn't happen, but not yet. So uh, nevertheless, Paul is, what was the other part of your question? Why is that important? Yeah, well, why is it important that this letter to the Romans, because it's written specifically to those Christians, you know, the Jews and Gentiles in Rome. And just to add something to what you said, that Paul had never been there. And yet when you read chapter 16, it's interesting how many people he knows that are in Rome because he writes certain things to them. But why is this letter to the Romans also, or why, why are we also the audience, and why is it important to us? Well, I think it's, this is as close as you find in the New Testament to a systematic theological, uh, theology text. You know, doctrine by doctrine, point by point. You just don't see that so much in the other the other writings of Paul or any other New Testament authors, as you do here in Romans. What I find to be most interesting, and it's a question I could ask the Holy Spirit someday when I get to heaven, and that, and that is, uh, Paul talks about just about everything that's important, but he never talks about the Lord's Supper. He talks about baptism in great detail. He never says anything about the Lord's Supper. Except, of course, a passage that we use with close communion quite often, Romans 16, 7, 7 that sort of thing, 17. Um, Mark those cause divisions, offenses, contrary to the doctrine, you learn to avoid them. That's, but, but apart from that, he never specifically talks about the Lord's Supper. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I like what you said with, you know, going point by point through the doctrines. And that's why when I was trying to figure out, well, what should I be leading for the new Bible study uh, here at our Racine campus for this new school? new church year when we started in Advent and then going into 2023. And I was looking at all kinds of Bible studies on Northwestern Publishing House and Concordia Publishing House. I didn't really find anything that excited me teaching about the doctrines or the Christian life, putting those doctrines into practice. So it just made sense. Well, let's just go right through Romans. All the doctrines point by point are right there. And whenever I teach on Romans, I use this quote from Luther He says, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament, and it's truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that we should occupy himself with it every day. 
as the daily bread of the soul. Uh, and and then I add to that, uh, you know, the audience is the Romans, and yet what the Roman Christians are going through is pretty much exactly what we're going through as American Christians just 2,000 years later. Jeremy, in verses 2 and 3, Paul tells us the message he preached to the world. What was that message? Uh, that Jesus was humbled. Uh, he humbled himself, and then he was exalted. Uh, that is the... Um, I'm sorry, verses two and three, you said? Yes. Uh, okay, I, I guess I was looking at the uh, two thoughts of flesh in verse three and then spirit in verse four. Okay, well, that, that goes to verse four about, too. Um, I, I mean, verse two just adds to one of those miracles that uh, Pastor Peters mentioned before of God predicted hundreds of years before Jesus' birth that it would be, that it would happen, and then, uh, and then it happened. Um, that's, so that's part of it in verse 2. He's, he told these things beforehand through the scriptures. Um, but uh, you've got Jesus' time of the flesh. That was his humiliation. Uh, he, was, he, is, he is truly human, descended from David, and also um, he is truly God. Uh, which you can see based on his resurrection from the dead, uh, which was also the first phase of his exaltation. So, David, why do you think that this, uh, this scripture lesson, these seven verses, were paired with the Old Testament lesson of Isaiah 7, of the promise of Emmanuel, God with us? We just read through the Gospels. And why do you think this was chosen to be paired with those two readings? I think it's primarily because it talks about the gospel about uh, being the son of God and who's, and yet he's in the flesh, the son of God, the word of God has become flesh as St. John says it, uh, that, that you have him as the descendant of David. He is in fact, he says in verse two, uh, uh, the one who uh, fulfills the prophet, the promises of the prophets. So uh, he's writing to the Romans saying, this is the, the gospel, I'm going to tell you about Jesus, and he is the one who fulfills all the prophecies of the prophets in the Old Testament. He is going to be king of kings and Lord, is king of kings and Lord of lords because he's the descendant of David. David's legitimate heir to reign on his throne for all eternity. So, um, yeah, this, this is the fulfillment of, of, uh, of the words of the prophets. Jeremy, both you and Dave mentioned flesh and spirit and humiliation and exaltation. Why are those two concepts of humiliation and exaltation so important for us to understand? We are going to be going through life uh, just like our Lord went through life. He didn't start with uh, his exaltation or uh, he didn't yeah, it begin with glory um, he started at the bottom and worked his way down from there. Uh, so he, that, that's, his, that's his humiliation. Um, and we shouldn't expect anything different when we live our life of faith on this earth. Uh, and that doesn't, and at the same time, we shouldn't think that it's just an everlasting purgatory. Uh, our earthly life um, is the, our earthly life is the closest that believers ever get to hell. Uh, 
and uh, yet uh, there there will be an exaltation afterward, just like Jesus was exalted. So the the more you get to know Jesus, humiliation and exaltation, the better you will uh, understand your own circumstances in life. That's a very interesting insight, by the way. I never thought of that. Appreciate that. Hmm. Sure. Well, it's, I mean, that's Philippians 2 is uh, let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Uh, and then he goes on to describe his humiliation and exaltation. That's let, let your mind be that same, that same way. Well, talking about his humiliation uh, in a sermon a little while ago, I had talked about just making the comparisons between Christ's and what he gave up in the manger and then making the comparisons on the cross. And I talked about how at Christmas you had the angels singing glory to God in the highest. But 33 years later on Good Friday, that's exchanged for the mob shouting, crucify him, crucify him. That he exchanged the swaddling clothes he was wrapped in at his birth for probably being naked on the cross. I, I said that he exchanged the uh soft, well-used wood of the manger for the rough, well-used wood of the cross. But then one of our teens, when he was shaking hands with me after the service at Pastor, uh, I learned in religion class at Shoreland that the manger probably wasn't made out of wood. It was made out of stone. And, and I told him, uh, well, Asher, you're exactly right, but I couldn't, I couldn't say the stone of the cross and the stone of the manger. I was just trying to use some some picture language, but I did I I did uh, appreciate that he was listening that closely that he would point it out to me afterwards. Yeah, been there, seen that. Yeah, they, they were stone. Besides yeah. that, anybody who knows much about raising uh, farm animals knows what they'll do to wood. That'll decompose, that'll break down between their chewing on it, their urinating on it, their scratching on it. They're kicking it, bump it up again. That'll fall apart in no time flat. But, yep. uh, you know, they've they got limestone all over the place, a lot more limestone than they have wood. You know, and I remember taking a class at summer quarter one time. Uh, Professor Brooke told us, he said that uh, the number one crop that they raise in Israel is limestone. <laughs> <laughs> so then... Uh, so then, Dave, when Paul talks in verse 5 and 6, he says, through him we receive grace and the call to be an apostle. But then he says in verse 6, including you, you were called by Jesus Christ. Why don't you talk about those two distinct calls that Paul is talking about, the one he received and the one that the Christians received? Well, we as Christians have all been called by the Holy Spirit through the agent, pardon me, by, by Jesus through the agency of the Holy Spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit to us through his uh, means of grace, the gospel and the word, and in the sacrament of baptism to call us to be his own. Um, to, to, um, but, but when it came to, comes to Paul, he had a particularly special calling to be an apostle. Okay, And that is a, a special grace that he has not given to you or to me. Uh, this is his particular calling as a Christian, he, you know, we all have our various uh, vocations, callings. Okay, I'm a grandpa and a daddy and a parish pastor and etc. Uh, Paul has got his vocation as well, and uh, he's not a daddy, he's not a, a husband, but but he is an apostle as a particular vocation. 
And what distinguishes that um, apostle from other forms of ministry is that he was personally chosen and instructed by the Lord Jesus and uh, trained by him and then sent out as his personal representative with, as we call it, with Jesus' apostolic authority. When he speaks, Jesus is speaking through him. Uh, and even then, we have to acknowledge that the term apostle is used in, a, in this narrow sense in which I just defined it, and a little bit broader sense as well. Uh, Barnabas, for example, is also called an apostle. And we don't know of Jesus ever taking Barnabas out into the desert and training him for three years as he did uh, Saul of Tarsus. So, yeah. apparently, apostle can be used in a little broader term, in a broader sense, as well as in the, the narrow sense that we normally use it. Yeah, and then that, then the idea too of that the Christians in Rome, like us, that we're called, that we don't go to Jesus. Uh, he calls us to him. Uh, we don't. Uh, he doesn't wait for us to bring our sins to him. He comes and he dies and takes our sins upon himself. That whole idea, again, that we focus on as Lutherans, as uh, salvation isn't what we do. It's what, what Christ has done for us, even that part of calling us to him. Uh, anything else you guys want to bring up on the epistle lesson? Um, I would just address the subject of who was Paul. Okay. And uh, we know that he was Saul from Tarsus and Cilicia. It's a big city in southeastern Turkey, which uh, meant that he automatically had Roman citizenship because he was from that city. And the, uh, the Senate had passed a resolution stating that anybody born in Tarsus was uh, automatically uh, gifted with Roman citizenship. But we know him as Paul. A lot of people over the years have suggested that Maybe his given name was Saul Paulus, that he had a Jewish name as well as a, a Roman name because his, uh, you know, one, one of his parents was uh, Jewish and one of his parents was Gentile. We don't know that, but what we do know is that in the, in the, on his first missionary journey, when Saul of Tarsus went out to the island of Crete, and there he had the privilege of being used by the Holy Spirit to convert Sergius Paulus the governor of the island of Crete, <clears throat> that uh, Sergius Paulus decided to uh, bestow this honor upon Saul by giving him, by giving Saul his own name, Paul. And the name Paul sticks, and it's used consistently ever after. <clears throat> no more Saul, now Paul. And uh, this, this name comes, Sergius Paulus. I've read some Roman, um, you know, historians of ancient Roman Empire stuff, who um, talk about that and about how uh, when when somebody, especially a uh, a patron, usually of great financial means, a patron uh, wants to really, really bestow an honor upon somebody, they give them their own name. It's practically practically like being adopted into the family without being adopted into the family. So uh, there you have it. All right. He's Paul. He's Paul, named after uh, and by Sergius Paulus. Well, thank you, sir. Well, then we're going to wrap it up here.
uh, just a reminder for our for our listeners that you know we appreciate all of our guests, but next week Jeremy and I have very special guests that are going to be on. It's going to be our wives, so Abby Leighton and Shelley Zarling are going to be on with the two of us. Uh, so this is Michael Zarling with David Peters, and because they've learned a lot from the two of you today, it's been enlightening. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.